Peace and love, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about true people's liberation movements and revolution. I'm your host, Josh. I use she, her pronouns, and I am here today to talk about the ongoing conflict, aka the ongoing genocide, as it should be clearly named in Palestine against the Palestinian people by the state known as Israel. But we are also here to talk about the colonial connections, the actual foundations for what Israel is and, you know, really where it came from, as well as the so-called democratic and freedom-loving states that we are taught to hold up and see with high esteem as somehow working towards the best effort and interest of the majority of the population, which, if you're paying attention, if you're looking into history, if you're watching anything, the news, social media, you can see clearly that These are lies from top to bottom. So we're here to debunk some lies. And this is going to be an introduction into a discussion, uh, which I've tried to record multiple times now. It's It's a lot. It's a lot of information, and it's hard to find a way to put it together flowingly and fluently so that it doesn't just sound like a bombardment of data and dates and death tolls and awful, extremely violent, genocidal uh, events and actions. But unfortunately, (laughs) the more you look into history, the more you understand that that is really how the world has come to be what it is today, through colonialism, genocide, imperialism, and exploitation. So we're going to talk about that, we're going to introduce a couple things, we're going to throw a couple ideas on the table, and we're going to open them up in further discussions to come later. But for now, we're going to focus primarily on the early development of European colonialism and capitalism, as well as the expansionism and militarism, which led to the conquering of the Americas, Asia, and Africa. We're going to briefly talk about the rise of fascism, so we're going to talk about World War I, the capitalist crises, and World War II. We're also going to be talking about the origins of Britain, of European empires, and of their offspring, such as uh, their colonies in the so-called United States, and then the uh, early foundations of the State of Israel. Again, this is all going to be introductory, so we're not going to be able to expand on too many specific points, but we are going to try as best as we can to get everything onto the table so that we can look at it all a bit further later on. I apologize ahead of time if this is a little rambly and this isn't exactly um, fluid. Uh, I am tired also, um, and... You know, I'll take a moment here to say that watching every single day 
and seeing not only the the death and the martyrdom of a nation that is 46% children. Over 7,000 are dead in less than three weeks, of which over 3,000 are children. Seeing videos of headless babies, of dead pregnant women, of hospitals destroyed while people are still being operated within them, of doctors and medical assistants receiving phone calls about their own family and their own homes being bombed and family members and loved ones killed. It has really seriously taken a toll on me, and I know that sounds pretty pathetic coming from someone who is not actively watching the bombs drop on me, not actively suffering under this ethnic cleansing and genocidal campaign myself. But for those of us from the outside looking in, it seems like the easy way out to just tune out, to turn off, to turn away. People close to me have, you know, insisted that maybe it'd be good to take a break, to pause, to stop looking at this stuff. But I feel that if we can't even speak about, share, and inform people by spreading around these videos and these commentaries and these disastrous images... Because if we don't, that's it. That's it for the Palestinians. They have no internet. They have no electricity. They're suffering under constant bombardment. They are kept in a concentration camp in Gaza and in the West Bank. Journalists are harassed and killed, like Shireen Abu Akleh, rest in power, an American-Palestinian journalist, which the American government has done nothing to seek punishment for the IDF's outright assassination and planned killing of her. Along with this, we know that the media and governments around the world are entirely complicit in the genocide of the Palestinian people, as they were and are continuously complicit in massacres and colonialism and oppression and genocide around the world. But here in Palestine, we have a very clear example, very evident example, that Israel's policies, practices, and procedures meet not only the vague and narrow definitions of the United Nations 
rules of genocide, the, the barriers by which one has to work within. But it constitutes genocide through a very visible and visceral blind eye view. And it's terrible how many people are willing and able to support this genocide either by passivity and apathy and turning away or by outright complicity and support. Joe Biden and the U.S. government, the U.S. empire, is guilty in genocide. The European powers are guilty in genocide. The state of Israel and its leadership, as, uh, as well as the settlers, are actively guilty and acting upon a genocidal campaign. Guilty of genocide. By any stretch of the word, however you look at it. But as we know, Israel is not the first colonial power. It's not the first nation state to uh, create itself in blood and occupation and to act as a colonial entity through war, through slavery, through concentration camps, through control of imports and exports, as well as diets. A complete and utter domination of Palestinian life. This is not an invention of the state of Israel. And so that's why I wanted to talk about the colonial connections because we see a lot of excuses for Israel or a lot of support for the state of Israel based on the suffering of the Jewish people. Um, specifically based on the suffering that the Jewish people endured during World War II and the Holocaust and the rise of fascism in Europe. But if we look deep into history, we see that the Jewish people, along with the Arab peoples, the Palestinians and others, along with oppressed people in Asia generally, in Africa and in the Americas, there has been a consistent effort to create a system by which one very specific group of people, an ever-decreasing and minuscule clique of bankers, CEOs, intelligence agencies, think tanks, politicians, police officers, militaries, corporations, and the like, who act using not only the state and public means, that is to mean the political, social, and economic institutions owned and controlled by the state, but also private endeavors in media, in education, in social 
organization, through religion, through all different means. Music, art, all kinds of different forms. They manipulate and mask the true origin and the true character of our day-to-day lives in a mystique filled mainly with consumerism and distracting things, uh, fueled by divisions based on racial, ethnic, national, religious, gender, sexual, or other divisions, such as class divisions specifically. They create all sorts of different boogeymen and groups and enemies for us to fight against. In one time period, it was the communists and the Soviets. And once again, Russia has made its way up to the top of the enemy list. Today, we can think of the Chinese. We can also think of the Cubans and the Venezuelans and the Nicaraguans, specifically their governments, who are targeted, tarnished, slandered. Folks are miseducated about and misinformed about, and they are turned them being the revolutionary peoples and governments around the world, are turned into an enemy. And one needn't be revolutionary to make this list. The different groups that have come into existence, whether they be uh, the Zionists, whether they be religious extremists, whether they be fascists, whether they be opportunists, anyone who is willing to destabilize and create a situation of chaos whereby imperialism can swoop in and, you know, save the day, will be armed to the teeth and funded to do so in order to always have an enemy in order to constantly be producing what it is that the colonial powers from Israel to Nazi Germany to fascist Italy to Portugal to colonial Spain to Britain to France to the United States, what they do best, which is weapons production, wage and labor exploitation, land theft, resource extraction, and wealth accumulation. So now that we kind of have this across, let's ask ourselves, what is happening today in Palestine? Is it new? Is it something we've not seen before? Or is it, as we just explained, a part of a continual process that has gone on for thousands of years whereby oppressing and exploiting classes have dominated and controlled, massacred and enslaved, oppressed people around the world and exploited them in order to further 
enrich and empower this ever-decreasing clique of the ruling class. When we look at this history, if we agree that this is not new, when we look to history, starting here at the period where settler colonialism became a fundamental characteristic of capitalist and colonial nations and empires, leaving aside thousands of years of history of class oppression, class struggle, and all sorts of exploitative and oppressive means to do so, starting after the era where Europe's wars amongst itself had led to the creation not only of nation-states, but the fundamental pan-European ideology now known as white supremacy. Coming to this point, the 1300, 1400, 1500s, we see a necessity on multiple different foundations for the European empires, as Rome did and as those before Rome did, to seek conquest outside of their own territories and specifically away from direct confrontation with nations and peoples who shared land with them in Europe for obvious reasons. So the Dutch and the Spanish, starting out, began to look to Africa and the Americas as a place to begin setting up new enterprises. Slavery, expanding that and systematizing that. Land theft, the expansion of manufacture, factories, as well as markets, economic domination generally. You saw new conflicts and new divisions created through this process, through religious indoctrination, through extremist propaganda through anti-indigenous sentiment, racism, xenophobia, um, mysticism about the supremacy of white people. This all really found its concretization through this early process of colonialism. Now, at this time, we have to just hop back and forth between different things happening. As this is going on, the 1400s and 1300s, as this is happening, Europe is also going about expelling the Jewish populations as well as the Roma populations from Europe and trying to find somewhere to put them. Now... 
I'm just going to say, this is an aside. I don't take the Bible literally, and I don't take this religious texts that are used in different Abrahamic religions today as fact. But if we believe the stories about the Israelites, then it must be true and understood that this is not a new struggle for the Jewish people. However, a solution is not colonialism and imperialism in the name of and in the interest of Jewish people as a whole. But it is revolutionary upheaval and struggle and organization of the Jewish people along with oppressed people around the world to overthrow imperialist and colonial regimes, not to create its own state to go ahead and exploit and oppress the Palestinians. As capitalism, a system by which the Factories, land, agricultural production, resources, education, health systems, housing, all of it, the means of production, what goes into creating society, is owned privately by a small, again, ever decreasing, like every single day there's less and less people who can really be called capitalists or the ruling class, who oppress and exploit everybody else, the early foundations of that were colonialism. The only way that these classes, these groups, these people could have amassed this much wealth was through colonial enterprises. And the logic of imperialism, again, dates back to Rome and pre-Rome. But capitalism, imperialism, is of a different sort. And the colonialism that exists today looks very different to the colonialism that existed, say, during the 14 and 1500s, which looks very different to the colonialism and imperialism of the Roman Empire. The reason why I bring this up is because At the same time, the same logic holds true for colonial, imperial, and capitalist empires. That is, in order to gain power, to gain imperial domination, one has to steal from, exploit, and oppress another people outside of one's own nation, along with the people that are being oppressed within one's nation. One has to look outside of that nation and oppress and exploit another land. By doing so and building up that wealth, creating that colonial-controlled nation, that colony, it has now expanded itself and broadened itself in a way that can only be kept going 
and can only continue to exist by further expanding and further exploiting not only the colonies and peoples within its own nation that it has already oppressed, but looking outside of even those for more land, resources, and people to oppress and exploit. So the exploitation in Europe and early capitalist societies is the same form in a uh, different variant of exploitation that existed in colonial enterprises in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. The difference being it was the ruling class reassessing and redeveloping ways to stay in power. Because throughout the early wars of European development, throughout early colonialism, no oppressed people was oppressed silently. No people were enslaved without a fight. And so the ruling classes had to learn time and time again how to keep down revolutions, how to keep down revolts, how to enslave people and manipulate people and control people, how to dominate their economies, how to steal their resources, how to destroy their political institutions and their social movements, and to actually fully envelop the oppressed people into the ideology and the existence of the mother nation, of the colonial power. At the same time, it must be understood that there is more than just simply abstract and generalization of what happened. There are stories and accounts and material evidence that shows the actual practices that went into doing this. Slavery, ethnic cleansing, burning of land, burning of villages, killing of children, killing of women, the destruction of culture, the indoctrination through religion and through imperialist, nationalist measures to make indigenous peoples a part of the oppressing nation, to rid indigenous people of their indigeneity. It expanded markets. It enslaved and exploited more populations in a further, more exploitative measure. It also created a mythology. Sorry, I got to get a drink here. It created a mythology, right, that 
white people, European people, were somehow like a higher being than, say, Africans or Asians or Latin Americans. White supremacy is not just like an opinion. It's not just like an abstract idea that, say, some folks believe. White supremacism, pan-Europeanism, whiteness, whatever you want to call it, racism, is a way with which people are taught to view the world so that as information comes into their mind, it goes through the filter of racist ideas and beliefs, which then concoct and construct a conclusion as to why the world is the way that the world is. Example, why have African people been colonized? According to white supremacist ideology, it is because white people are of a higher being, of a higher echelon of existence. They have higher intellect. They are more civilized. Again, these racist ideas. And therefore, because of that, they have the right to conquest, to civilize uncivilized peoples, a.k.a. non-white people, non-Europeans, because... Europeans and white people are of a higher being, a higher existence. That is not just an opinion. That is a belief system. That's a worldview. That is a fundamental lens by which a sizable portion of the world's population views the world. Even if they don't fully support that, it is subconsciously built in to the way that each and every single one of us sees the world and has been for thousands of years. That is why it's more than just some idea that one person or a few people have. It is a system. It is a structure because it is also supported by active material forms of oppression, exploitation, and impoverishment, as well as genocide. It's not just like everybody lives equally amongst themselves and, you know, in their own lands, doing their own thing, however they want, and then racism comes along. Racism is a part of colonialism, and colonialism used racism as a justification for what it did, for what the colonists did, for what the capitalists do today. Racism is still a justification. It also served a very important role, which also goes along with imperial and capitalist logic, which is that monopolization, the creation of one or a few nations, corporations, people, what have you, that dominate all other institutions, nations, people, what have you. If you look at the banks today, 
there are, let me look it up right now, actually, so I don't get this wrong. What do I look up? Most powerful banks, most wealthy banks. I don't know. We'll start with most powerful, see what happens. The 10 biggest banks in the world. All right. So we have the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, China Construction Bank Corps, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., Bank of America Corps, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, BNP Paribas, HSBC Holdings, Banco Santadar, China Merchants Bank, etc. Um all of these, oh, and then you also have the Morgan Stanley and the Royal Bank of Canada. Now, the reason why I mention these is because every single one of these fucking banks, I have more to do in research of the, the banks in China, but we'll say specifically here the banks of the United States, the UK, and other capitalist nations are all um, monopolies, which means that they absorbed and bought out and merged with whatever term they wanted to use, every other bank, basically, that has ever existed. And they now dominate and dictate over the banking industry. The reason why that is important is because nothing gets done without money. The reason why Israel is able to commit genocide is because of money. The reason why the United States is continuing to dominate over the world, even against the rise of China, is because of not only money, but the military strength that money buys, right? Same with Israel. And when you look at the way in which the world is dominated today, it is not explicitly and specifically through military means, although that is certainly a part of it. The U.S. has 800 military bases. That's not not a part of it. But it's through banking, it is through financial measures, it's through production and industry and agriculture that other nations are controlled and dominated through what is known as finance capital. That means these very, 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 very few and very, 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 very large banks get to decide for the world, what is produced, who produces it, what its cost is, what someone will pay for it, and therein, who gets to buy it and who doesn't, and who's going to produce it and who won't. You don't see the children of the Rothschilds and the Morgans and the politicians and the intelligence agents and the police officers going out and being forced to work in a mine, to extract resources from the ground, to work in a factory or a sweatshop. You don't see that. It is the poor, it is the impoverished who are forced to do these things. The reason why that is important is because looking at the foundation of colonies and puppet states, the same 
thing is true. The goal is to control production, resources, economies, markets, and people through political, social, and economic measures. As we come into the 17 and 1800s, we see not only an ever-increasing rise in anti-Semitism, but an ever-increasing rise in conflicts and clashes, not only between peoples within Europe or peoples within their own nation, so to say, but in colonial territories between colonial powers. You see the wars between Britain and France over, for example, Turtle Island. You see the wars between the Spanish and the British, the wars between the different colonial powers in the Americas, then in Africa and in Asia. We see the Spanish-American War. We see the Prussian German, what is it? I'm trying to think here because it's the war. What is it? The Franco-Prussian War, right? Yep, Franco-Prussian War. You see all these different wars happening both within the actual colonial powers, within the actual European nations, but ever increasingly you see the expansion of wars also in colonies. And these wars led to a couple different things. One, it led to class contradictions whereby some of the population within the colonies fought with the colonizing powers and some fought against them. Others chose an opposing colonizing force, say those who fought with the French versus the British, or those who fought with the British instead of the Spanish, or those who fought with the Spanish instead of the Dutch, or those, you see what I mean? It was a very clear, contradictory point whereby oppressed people were so limited in their ability to actually heave off the colonial powers that many of them were forced to either flee or, you know, into exile, were imprisoned, were killed, or were forced to assimilate into the society created by whatever colonial power won out. We have the Spanish-American War, 1898, a year after the very first World Zionist Congress. This was held in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. This was a congress whereby primarily, I want to say, British and other European Zionists came together and decided that after the publishing of Theodore Herzl's Jewish State 
and along with the historic uh, endeavor of some Jewish peoples to establish either a return to the homeland or more uh, concretely and materially the creation of a state for Jewish people. At this point, it was the British who were dominating the world. They had been dominating the world for some time. And the U.S. was on its heels, but the Brits were still the leading colonial and imperialist power in the world. And who is it that Theodore Herzl and the others who attended the very first World Zionist Congress turned to in order to assist them in their endeavors to create a Jewish nation state. They turned to the British, who at that time were actively colonizing over 50% of the world, actively enslaving and oppressing millions of people, and asked them to go ahead and colonize a land for the Jewish people to turn into their own homeland. They decided between, I want to say here, let me look. They had a couple different nations that they wanted to choose between. Where did they go? Oh, they chose between Madagascar, Uganda, Alaska, Argentina, and Palestine, amongst others, and they landed on Palestine for a couple different reasons. One, it's historic connections to the stories and the, uh, uh, I don't want to be offensive, but I don't, I don't believe, you know, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in these stories, but anyways, in the, uh, in the historical traditions of the, the Jewish people, uh, this land, for, you know, they claim as their own, but also because of this practical purpose that it was the British and the colonial powers who could be used as a bridge to actually seizing that land. Um, as the situation was, there was a small Jewish population already in Palestine. At the turn of the 1900s, you have a sizable emigration and exiling, self-exiling in some cases, of Jewish populations from Eastern Europe and Russia. You have many pogroms, many uh, extremely violent attacks of Jewish and Roma people throughout Eastern Europe and Russia that led to some immigrating and settling in Palestine, seizing land from uh, Palestinian peoples who either were absentee landlords and buying up the land uh, in the effort known as, let me see, where is it? Operation Bias State, 
where they bought land from absentee landlords, which they call land redemption or judifying the land. Um, this is still an effort that goes on to today. And a lot of this land was turned into cooperative Jewish settlements as an attempt, I believe, to not only bolster support for this settlement as it was not explicitly yet a class society to some who saw it as a reestablishment of the Jewish homeland, but also to placate to socialist ideas which were ever growing at this time throughout not only Eastern Europe and Russia, but also Asia and the United States and Europe outside of Eastern Europe. So anyways, that's just an aside. But at this point, you start to have the failed revolution in Russia, which led to Jewish people fleeing from there and fleeing violence there. And you also have some of the earliest attempts by the Zionist movement to actually seize land legally from those who dominated it. But it was World War I that really threw things in the Zionists' favor. So again... When we're talking about colonial powers and how they actually fundamentally create themselves, how they come into being, war is one of the most constant and consistent forms of expansion and concretization for colonial nation states, for capitalist powers. If you look at the history of colonialism and capitalism and imperialism, it has gone from war to war to war to war. But we have to understand that some of these wars are wars against colonial powers within their own lands. Some of these are wars against oppressed people within colonial European nations. Some of these are wars against populations of indigenous people within nations that are being colonized. Some of these are wars between colonizing powers inside of colonized nations. And some of these are wars that are funded and fomented between colonial, colonized and colonial nations. Or I should say, between colonized peoples and nations and themselves. Which leads towards the ability and opportunity for the actual oppressing nations, the mother countries, the imperialist powers, to swoop in and further dominate, further exploit, and further oppress the people. So, war. What is it good for? 
Well, first of all, seizing of land. When a war happens and one power wins, usually that power is able to take the land of the losing power and divide it amongst the winning powers. The second is expansion in that way in those lands of markets, production, economic exploitation, and labor forces, as well as resource extraction and wealth accumulation among the ruling capitalist class themselves. Another thing it's good for is kind of recreating and rehashing the idea that imperial powers deserve and ultimately will win out in ruling over the world because they have the mightiest militaries or they have the uh, strongest willpower or they have the most determination or if you get into the more racist ideology because they're of a higher existence and humanity than these nations that they are warring with. You can see this in the way that the United States and Europe paints its enemies. It is never one human population warring with another human population. It is the moral good guy and protagonist of society, the Europeans, the white people, against the protagonist, the immoral, the backward, the animalistic, the beast-like. Still to this day, when you see what has been said about Russians, when you see what is said about Chinese, when you see what is said about Africans, when you see what is said about Latin Americans, when you see what is said about the indigenous and about non-white, non-European, non-Catholic, Protestant people, non-men as well, it is still an extremely racist, bigoted, backward mentality that goes into viewing the world. It has a strict binary of good guy versus bad guy. This too is a part of war. So as World War I came about, the period of the mid-1910s to the late-1910s, early-1920s, you have all kinds of attempts at social change, at political change, happening around the world. You have struggles in Europe. You have struggles in the United States. You have struggles in the Americas for independence continuing. You have the struggles of the Caribbean of the African nations and of Asia for independence. But as World War I comes to a close, many of these hopes for independence are dashed in the way in which the Allied powers through the League of Nations and other treaties goes about repartitioning the world between colonizing powers.
you have one group who has colonized the world, who then gets to go on and divide the world once again amongst itself, creating not only a binary of colonizing versus colonized, but also creating a retributive and revenge-like incentive for those powers who lost, who weren't able to create colonial nations and empires, who then sought out wanting their, what they believed, uh, just take at the world. You know, their attempt to create a colonial enterprise. In 1917, right before the end of the war, you have a letter which is sent from Alfred Balfour to, what's his first name? He's a Rothschild. Anyways, it is a letter which is essentially used as a founding document for the Zionist movement and the foundation of Israel that states one sentence that is quoted quite clearly and often, Her Majesty's government views with favor the creation of a Jewish homeland in the state, or excuse me, of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And it goes on to say, without, however, interrupting or attacking and destroying the already inhabiting population. A couple things with this. One, it names the nation as Palestine, therefore already setting the argument straight, which is that it is Palestine, it is a home for the Palestinians. The second thing, contradictorily, or contradictorily, I don't know, Anyways, in opposition to that, they also went on to create a already existing binary where Jewish people were the primary citizenry and non-Jewish people, the way that the Palestinians were described, non-Jewish inhabitants, as the secondary or second class citizenry. In their own home. The third thing worth pointing out is that this letter, of course, ultimately didn't really carry any legal weight. But the reason why it's so important is because it was a public letter which was released propagandistically, talking directly to a leader of the capitalist class about the necessity to colonize Palestine for the Jewish nation. And it was the ruling class sections discussing with themselves openly in order to incentivize support for their efforts to do so. And they say, yes, Her Majesty's government views with favor. But that is going with the assumption that It is them who is pushing the effort, the Zionists, the actual uh, backers and 
settlers and fighting forces who would and will and are going into Palestinian land and colonizing them, who is searching for and looking towards Britain's government for support in doing so. Because in 1917, Britain conquered Palestine from the Ottoman Turks, from the Ottoman Empire. So it was this effort, this seizing of the land, that really pushed into full force the ability to not only talk openly and publicly and for the purpose of building support for this colonial project, but that now there was already in existence an, a material ability and opportunity to do so. It was no longer just an abstract interest or want or hope. It was a real possibility. So we also know that after World War I, you have a couple important things that happen. One, you have the League of Nations and other treaties, which, as we mentioned, allows for the former and current colonial powers to decide amongst themselves how they are going to continue to divide and conquer the world. There were no Africans present, there were no Asians present, there were no Latin Americans present, no uh, people from the Caribbean, no indigenous people present, who had a real ability to stand and say or work towards independence for their people and their nations. It was a colonial endeavor. Another thing that's important to mention is that after World War I, Many nations, including what was known as the Weimar Republic, attempted to create a go-between between what was called at the time a Soviet system or a socialist system and a capitalist system. So they created certain social democratic reforms and certain attempts to appease the ever-increasing impoverished population, the unemployed and the indebted, who had just gone to war, who had just watched their children die, who had just, you know, suffered loss of limbs or bodily and mental harm themselves, just to come back and have to go work in factories or be unemployed or work in a mine or be on the side of the road and die. They didn't want a revolution. They didn't want what happened in the Soviet Union in the Russian Revolution to happen anywhere else in the world. And so they took seriously the necessity to put down any and all socialist ideas. One of the ways that they did so was by essentially appeasing to socialism without actually creating socialism. So a lot of socialist and communist parties really failed both before World War I in turning the war into a class war and after World War I in actually creating a socialist world, a socialist society based on what the Soviets and the Russians and the revolutionaries throughout the different Soviet republics did. And it failed. It failed miserably. Social democracy fails every single time because it is still capitalistic, it is still exploitative, it is still repressive, and it is still built on a system whereby one group dominates politically, socially, and economically the majority. 
And so you have all these different reforms, all these attempts to rehash capitalism, all these different ways to not only try to appease the masses away from revolution, but also save capitalism from collapsing. This is when we begin to see the rise of what would become the capitalists' favorite, uh, what shall we call it, watchdog, enforcer, which was fascism. Fascism got its rise in 1920s Italy, once the failure of many social democratic reforms uh, led to capitalist crises, similar to what happens in Germany under the Weimar Republic. During this time, a group of syndicalists coming from a kind of left anti-socialist lens, left anti-Soviet lens, felt that it was of their best interest to take allegiance with the capitalist class and to actually create a monopolistic state that enshrines itself and envelops itself with the capitalist system. So rather than having a revolution in the name of the working and oppressed people and creating a socialist system, it was an ideological tool, fascism, that used revolutionary rhetoric and organizing tools, but manipulated them into creating an ideology in support of colonial nation states that led to anti-democratic, anti-worker, anti-socialist, anti-human systems, structures, laws, and policies. And it was ultimately a class struggle, a final solution for the ruling class against the oppressed class. Fascism was capitalism's saving grace. Not only because it supported the racist and mythological folklore ideology of white supremacism um, and the higher existence of European peoples or German peoples or what have you, but because the fascists directly sought relations with and worked directly hand-in-hand hand with the capitalist and industrialist class to remove any and all workers' rights, any and all organizations, socialist, communist, and anarchist parties, groups, or collectives. It destroyed democratic institutions, and it removed any and all power that had been fought for and placed in through struggle, the hands of the people. It had been revoked and given back to the ruling class. Capitalism was in crises. 
And since fascism came to save the day, we know that class divisions, racism, ethno-nationalism, and reactionism further divided and led to an increase in violence between people's ethnicities, nationalities, religions, and nations. We know that during the early 1900s, Jim Crow, segregation, miscegenation laws, the Quota Act, Chinese exclusion, uh, all kinds of anti-Asian immigration laws, you had uh, harassment and oppression of Jewish, Irish, and other immigrant populations, you had violent mobs that would go into um, sizable, prominent black communities, into indigenous uh, reservations, into uh, Chinese communities, and attack people, lynch people, murder people. Um, We know of the death of many who only died because of white supremacist violence. This was also on the rise against Jewish people, as we mentioned. And so, after the League of Nations, during this period, you had the mandate of Britain over Palestine. The same thing was happening in Palestine. You had a partition of the homeland of the Palestinian people, of which some were Jewish. So it's not as if they were uh, excluding Jewish people. And Palestinians are also a Semitic people, meaning they weren't anti-Semitic. You had the partitioning of Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab side. You had the Sykes-Picot Agreement previous to this in 1916, which was almost identically followed, rather than being split between Britain and France, it was split between Jewish and Arab. The Jewish people who pre-1922, before the World War, before the League of Nations, had 5% or less of the land, would go on eventually to be granted 56% of the land. As Europe was meddling in Palestine, 250,000 Palestinians were removed from their homes. Not only because of violence from Jewish settlers, but especially because of violence from British colonialists. It was the British colonialists who taught the state of Israel how to destroy homes, how to do raids, had to go down the block, one house by one, demolishing them. It was the British who destroyed Palestinian schools and hospitals, marketplaces, newspapers, politicians, and political institutions. They assassinated and captured and exiled the political and social leadership of the Palestinian people. They desecrated and destroyed religious 
holy sites. They harassed and abused religious leaders and religious practitioners, Christian and Muslim, and Jewish if they were Palestinian. And they fomented a war and conflict between peoples who previously lived in, as far as history has shown me to my understanding, peaceable and coexistence. Peaceable means coexistence, whatever. The Jewish, Muslim, and Christian peoples of Palestine. It was Britain who created the conflict between Jewish and Arab peoples, between Jewish and Palestinian peoples. It was the Palestinians themselves who tried for hundreds of years to have a society whereby religious, social, and other forms of tolerance were practiced. The British destroyed this. And it was the British who allowed the Zionists to use the name of Judaism, to use the name Jew, and to take that as a weapon and tarnish the name of Jewish people around the world by allowing the Zionists of Israel to commit the same sorts of violent massacres and terroristic exploitation and oppression against the Palestinian people that had happened to Jewish people throughout history. So at the same time that fascism is getting a rise in Europe, the Palestinian people are losing more and more land, and the Zionist movement is granted more and more power through British colonialism. As Nazi Germany comes into power, the National Social Democratic Labor Party, the Nazis, Germany and Europe were already engulfed in ethnic cleansing, in anti-socialist, anti-worker, anti-democratic measures. They were taking back and destroying any and all reforms which had come after the war. And they were taking wealth and resources from the bottom and sending them directly up to the top, allowing for monopolization and massive exploitation to take place on an ever-increasing and ever-advancing scale. The fascists were allowed to do so by the British, by the French, and by others, including the U.S., who directly armed, aided, met with, and discussed actually allying with the fascists in Europe. It wasn't until the fascists went to war in the colonial endeavors and nations, which Britain, France, and the United States had sought after themselves, that the Germans and Italians had themselves a war. Because the imperialists and the capitalists saw in fascism 
exactly what the fascists of Germany and Italy saw in the United States and the rest of capitalist Europe, which was a lineage and a relationality and a connection and a usefulness. The fascists supported the capitalists and the capitalists supported the fascists. It wasn't until Italy goes into Ethiopia, and even then, that's not much of a a shake and tremble. It's really when Germany starts to expand into Africa and starts to expand east towards Russia and, uh, you know, isn't immediately taking out the Soviets that the U.S. and European powers decide that maybe Germany and Italy and the fascists need to be taught a lesson or need to not be allowed to take control of what isn't, according to the colonial powers, rightfully theirs. And so 1939, we have a war. World War II is kind of just an internal colonial conflict, exactly as World War I is. It's the rising colonial powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan warring with the dying colonial powers of Britain, France, and the somewhat still rising U.S. Empire. It is the U.S. that really wins out at the end, though. As Jewish and Roma people are being slaughtered in Germany and Eastern Europe, most of the world looks on completely unabashed and uh, unashamed of their passivity and apathy towards actually doing something. It is clear that many nations, including unfortunately the Soviet Union, had a somewhat keen awareness of of what was happening, and yet were unwilling to act accordingly to put a stop to this, thereby appeasing and allowing the genocide of the Jewish and Roma people, which is a historical sadness and failure. However, It is the Soviet people who put a stop to Nazism and put an end to fascism and who would have completely put an end to fascism if the United States had not involved itself in the war and pushed back against the Soviets at, uh, what was it, in Germany, but what's the, uh, Normandy, Normandy. Anyways, from this point forward, fascism is not eradicated. Reactionism, racism, xenophobia, colonialism, all of these things take a new form. Many of the Nazis, many of the brown shirts, many of the fascists who took part in the genocide of peoples throughout Europe and Africa were allowed either somewhat kind of passive punishments of jail time while others were actually allowed through operations such as Operation Paperclip to come into the United States, other European nations, into Latin America, such as Argentina, in order to escape the actual punishment for their crimes against humanity. Much of the fascist leadership actually was allowed to regain leadership after the Uh, kind of establishment of uh, supposedly democratic nation-states in Europe after World War II. After the end of World War II, you also had the formation of the United Nations, 
NATO, and the Warsaw Pact. The United Nations was used for uh, Israeli occupation and settlement of Palestine by manipulation of the United States, Britain, and other powers who were seeking an end to their mandate in these areas and wanted to offset the control to a puppet government, which Israel was glad to become for them. So I believe it is May 12th. Let me look at my notes. I want to say it's May 12th, 1948, that Britain gives up its mandate on Palestine, which immediately leads to the announcement by Ben-Gurion that the state of Israel is to be founded, that he is to be its first president. Some other statements by Ben-Gurion go as follows. The Arabs must go, but one needs an opportune moment to do so. And he also goes on to say to the Jewish agency in 1948, I believe Palestinians will accept or have accepted the partition as fate accompli and do not believe it is possible to overcome and the majority do not want to fight us. So, it was at this point that, so jumping back a year here to 1947, that the United Nations officially recognized two states in Palestine, one for the Jewish population and one for the Arab-Palestinian population. The Zionists immediately accepted this because, as we mentioned earlier, this was the official point with which they were granted this partition land. They got 56% of Palestinian land, whereas the Palestinians, of course, doing our math here, received 44% of what was their historic national homeland. Half of their land in a day, more than half, was stolen right from underneath them. And this was done at a time where Palestinians still made up over two-thirds of the population, where the Palestinian people still had a religious tolerant society, where Jewish, Christian, and Muslim people lived together, even under British colonialism, even amidst Zionist occupation. But eventually it got to a point where it couldn't, it couldn't be allowed any longer. We know that in 1929 there was an uprising against the Jewish settlements and against the Jewish occupants that were coming in and taking Palestinian land. And then from 1936 to 1939, the Palestinians had a war against the British where over 6,000 Palestinians were slaughtered and much of their land was seized. From 1939 forward to 1948, the continued occupation, exiling, ethnic cleansing, and occupation of Palestinian people led to a majority of the population being completely without political, social, or economic power. Not only because of British colonialism, but because what power and institutions would or could be theirs were either destroyed or taken over and granted to the Jewish settlers.
It was clear at this point that the fall of fascism and the reestablishment of control by the capitalist and imperialist powers of Britain, France, and the United States, that there was a need for a reassessment of how control and domination would be done. This also came because in 1949, the revolutionary people of the People's Republic of China successfully established their own nation, their own socialist project against the tides of capitalist and imperialist advancement through the different economic measures and political fronts that they took in Europe, in the Americas, in Asia, and in Africa to rebuild, so to say, after they and the fascists destroyed most of the world. This was also another attempt for the colonial powers to redivide and reconquest the world. So what we now know as neocolonialism was coming about at the same time that the state of Israel was firmly established not only by the United Nations vote, but by the declaration of Ben-Gurion and what would come to be known as the Nakba, or translated into English, the catastrophe. This was the first real endeavor by the state of Israel to firmly establish itself not only as a small settlement of Jewish emigres and refugees from Europe, Russia, and from the Holocaust, but now it was a clear front of colonization, which ethnically cleansed the land, stole it, and renamed it even, creating a military and colonial front that was firmly of its own kind, surely still directly connected to and a part of the colonial powers of Britain and the United States. However, it was not Britain nor the United States that took these actions. And now comes the part of the show that I don't really care for but need to speak on. In the period between March and May of 1948, over 200 villages were raided, sacked, destroyed, demolished, and had their entire populations removed. In cases such as Deir Yazin, massacres were taken against 
women, and children. In Deir Yazin, over 300 were murdered. This was a part of Plan Dalid, which was to cleanse and destroy Palestinian towns and urban centers to establish a Jewish homeland in material form. From this point forward, the propaganda machine, the radio channels, and the newspapers went on to advertise that if Palestinians did not leave their homes, another Dier Yazin would happen, openly threatening massacres. Haifa, Jaffa, and other lands were stolen and renamed. People were murdered, children were murdered, women were raped. Land was burned, homes were destroyed, books were burned, medical supplies and institutions were decimated. Leaders of social movements, religious groups, and political institutions were assassinated. And over 250,000 people were expelled taking a population of over 750,000 down once again. That 750,000 being those who lived in Palestine pre-Jewish settlement. From this point forward, we have seen a complete capitulation by every single nation state, minus a few, who have allowed for the genocide of Palestinian people to take place. It also must be said that those who stand by silently are as complicit as those who openly acknowledge and support Zionist occupation and the genocide of the Palestinians. Humanitarian aid of medicines, food, water, and money are all being blocked. All imports and exports into Gaza have been controlled and in some cases ultimately stopped since 2006. For 75 years, the Palestinian people have been bombed. They have lost more land. They have been kept in concentration camps. They have been kept unemployed. They have seen their political leadership, their religious leadership, their social movements, their resistance movements, their organizations, their institutions, their hospitals, their schools, their parks, their homes, their land destroyed. And they have been forced out. All of those 
who by the United Nations were promised the right to return have never, never been granted the right to return by the so-called State of Israel. This is not a war as to say two equal parties on equal standing engaging in conflict between one another. This is contextually and historically a colonial occupation and a puppet satellite enterprise for the imperialist nations within Western Asia to control not only the land and the resources, but to foment destabilization so as to not allow the Arab peoples to actually stand firmly on their own and create their own societies and their own systems. This has been also advanced through the support of reactionary Arab regimes who oppress their own people. But speaking specifically of Palestine, this is a genocide, not a war. And the Palestinian people are fighting for their liberation and their survival. It was just released the other day that Israel's think tanks, one which is directly connected with Netanyahu, is speaking of its operation to create tent cities within Egypt in order to completely and finally settle Gaza. It is a policy and an objective of the Ministry of Intelligence, a.k.a. the Israeli government, to create a unit for settlement of the Gaza Strip to finally remove Palestinians from Gaza. The first step is to not only create the tent cities, but to push Palestinian people into the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt. The second is the construction of so-called humanitarian corridors to create the mirage that Israel is trying to aid uh, the Palestinians there in Egypt. The third is the creation of permanent cities along with a sterile zone south of Israel's border with Egypt, in order to prevent any return of Palestinian people. Israel wants to get rid of all Palestinians. And it is clear that the United States, along with Europe and almost every other nation in the world, I would throw on here Russia and China, who even in their passive attempts to call for ceasefire humanitarian aid to try to prevent uh, complete uh, appeasement within, for example, the United Nations of the occupation, have not done what is necessary to end the occupation 
of Israel and to end the reactionary state of Israel once and for all. Joe Biden is not even willing to take the steps that the Bush administration took in 2000 and let's see. I want to say it was 2009 when he called for a ceasefire. Or not 2009. Anyways, it was the last Bush administration who called for a ceasefire after only 600 Palestinians had been killed. We're at 7,000. Biden's not even willing to do that. Biden flies out and says that he stands in solidarity with Israel. Over 40% of the population of Palestine is children. And 3,000 have died. This shows a direct attempt by the Israeli state to kill the next generation of Palestinians so as to not allow for any children to grow up or to exist and to be able to live in Palestine. The media cannot control the narrative anymore, though. And this is what I want to end with. To those of you who are in journalism, media, what have you, those of you who are Christian or Jewish or just simply standing in solidarity with Israel, do not close your eyes and look clearly at reality. Social media and the ability for anyone to upload videos and images to the internet to be seen by all, has proven clearly that the lies and the misinformation of Israel in order to justify its occupation is no longer the only narrative, is no longer the mainstream. And when we look at the millions of people who are protesting and demonstrating organizing in support and solidarity of Palestinian liberation, we must see clearly the contradiction between any and all protests or demonstrations in support for the state of Israel. Look at the difference. The people of the world understand clearly that Palestine represents a call for all of humanity to finally and forever end occupation and oppression once and for all. The Palestinian people cannot fight this alone, though. And the Palestinian people will, like many indigenous people before them, like Africans, Asians, Americans, uh, indigenous folks from Turtle Island, First Nation peoples, Hawaiians, the Filipinos, etc., the Puerto Ricans, the Taino, like those before them. The Palestinian people will continue to suffer an ongoing genocide up until the point of either first their complete and utter non-existence or second, a resounding and concrete force in support and solidarity with their liberation to put an end to the occupation of Palestine.
we must look to history, such as the fight against apartheid South Africa and other nations like Rhodesia, who, through many different measures, of which some I can't explicitly speak to, were put to stop, to an end. They were finalized. But we know that even those histories have created their own offspring, their own contradictions. And in today's Africa, in today's South Africa, in today's Latin America, in today's Caribbean, in today's Asia, independence has not necessarily meant liberation. So we must fight along with the Palestinian people for true liberation and an end to exploitation and oppression everywhere. All power to the Palestinian people, all power to their national liberation struggle, and to those who are actively fighting around the world to see an end to occupation everywhere. Long live revolution. All power to the people. Peace.